Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, this weekend brings several of the themes we have been exploring as of late to a new depth by way of providing more detail. Specifically, our focus for today will be on what it means to be a member of God's instrument of forgiving love in the world, the body of Christ, as mentioned two weekends ago. Moreover, it is also connected to the idea that we find our truest identity only in Christ, spoken of over the last two weekends. Finally, our discussion for today ties directly into our discussion from last weekend where, following the words of St. Gregory of Nyssa, we explored the idea that the ability to change and grow is the finest quality of human nature. The necessary connections will be made at the appropriate time as we move along. However, it is good to recall the instruction we have received as of late from the Master Teacher, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Moreover, it is important to note that the themes just listed are not hypothetical claims or opinions. They are truth claims. The nature of our discussion today presupposes that such claims can and ought to be made. Already we find ourselves at odds with the contemporary world, for whom truth is a downright dirty word. How often don't we hear a conversation taking place where one person makes a claim and is replied to with something along the lines of, well, that may be true for you, but that's your truth, not mine. Now, if we are talking about what our favorite pizza toppings are, or about the merits of sleeping on one's back as opposed to one's side to maximize rest, then such a response is valid. However, when speaking of human nature and the manner we ought to live so as to fully flourish, which we call morality, then such simplistic relativistic dismissals simply won't do. Rather, speaking about morality entails the making of genuine truth claims. To argue for moral relativism, as some do, is simply absurd on its face, and ought never be taken seriously. If moral relativism holds, then nothing, absolutely nothing, can be called evil. Not the most heinous crimes, such as rape or the mass murdering of an entire people, such as happened during the Holocaust. It's really that simple. From the perspective of Christianity, the most emphatic and clear revelatory truth claim God makes is the life of the Incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. The Catechism puts it this way in paragraph 65, Christ, the Son of God made man, is the Father's one, perfect, and unsurpassable word. In Him He has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. Unpacking all that this one ultimate word of God means will occupy the human family for the rest of time, and even when the end comes, we will not have discovered or understood everything there is to know about God's revelation in the Son. That said, by the loving mercy of God the veil has been torn, and to we who once walked in the darkness a light has been shown, and we have been afforded a glimpse of ultimate truth. It is in the light of the truth that is Christ that the meaning of human life is found. 
Christ was not merely waxing poetic when he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Rather, he was revealing the truth that the purpose of human life, and in addition, the manner it ought to be lived so as to reach true happiness, is found only in him. Thus Christ, the true light, enlightens us today and calls us to echo his voice of truth, and thereby cast light into our world so filled with darkness. For Christians, speaking the truth regardless of the price we pay is the spiritual work of mercy known as fraternal correction or admonishing the sinner. For obvious reasons, this is a topic many are uncomfortable with. Nevertheless, it is an intrinsic part of the Christian life. In our gospel for today, from the 18th chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus even gives us step-by-step instructions as to how we ought to carry out this work of mercy. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, privately at first. Next, we are told that if he or she does not attend to the admonishment, to bring along additional persons to give voice to the same truth. Then, if he or she still insists on their innocence, we are told to bring them to the assembly of the church to be corrected. Finally, Jesus says, if they still refuse to listen, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, the recalcitrant one must be excluded from the community. This last step is that of excommunication. As unfashionable as admonishing the sinner is, excommunication is downright anathema to our society, which continually promotes the vague concepts of inclusivity and tolerance, often without ever describing what those terms mean. Ironically, those who promote such concepts are often those who are least inclusive and tolerant when it comes to the teachings of Christianity, but I leave that aside for another day. When it comes to excommunication from the church, the idea is not simply to cast off the individual concerned, far from it. Instead, the penalty of excommunication carries a twofold intent. First and foremost, it is done out of love for the guilty party. The hope is that, by separating them from the community, they may come to realize how severe their error really is, and thereby be moved to repentance and reintegration into the body of Christ. This is implied by the way our Lord immediately connects the idea of excommunication with his promise to the church through Peter, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's more, to emphasize this promise, he adds what he had not said before, telling them, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. It is important to keep in mind here that the work of binding and loosing is not one of imposing one's will or the collective will upon another. The way of the proud is not the way of Christ, who humbled himself in order to raise us to new life in him. Rather, the work of binding and loosing must be done by imitating Christ's humility and for the express aim of drawing all to God's forgiveness and the healing of divisions of all stripes within the human family and between the human family and God. This points to the second intent of excommunication. This penalty is also meant to make the gravity of the offense clear to the whole community, who are therefore taught to avoid whatever the guilty party may have done. Therefore, the work of admonishing the sinner, regardless of whether it be at the level of individual fraternal correction or at the ecclesial level, 
must always be done with an eye toward reconciliation and building up the strength of the church's unity, and never with the intent to condemn or discard our fallen brothers and sisters on the side of the road. We see this message come through loud and clear when we look at our first reading for today from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. However, in order to see this, we must broaden our view of the text a bit. The passage we hear from the pews today from the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel is but a very small portion of a longer passage where God is explaining to the prophet the work he is to carry out. In the portion we hear read aloud, it is clear that the prophet is being called to admonish the sinner. God tells Ezekiel that he has been appointed a watchman for the house of Israel. The reason why God uses this image as well as the manner in which the prophet is called to be a watchman is of special interest to our discussion. The reason why it comes before and after this portion of the passage. God says to the prophet, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one of their number as their sentinel, and if the sentinel sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if any who hear the sound of the trumpet do not take warning, their blood shall be upon their own heads. But if they had taken warning, they would have saved their lives. As a lookout for the people, the sentinel is continually watching over the city, ready to alert the people of any potential danger he sees on the horizon. He does this work to save the people of the city. And thus in the portion immediately following that which we hear, God tells Ezekiel that this is the reason he is sending him to admonish the people of Judah of their errant ways. God tells the prophet to say to the people, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. This verse refers to the impending historical doom of the people, and thus the loss of their earthly lives. But on a deeper level, the ultimate fate of the people is being discussed. For to be eternally separated from God is ultimate and unending death, and it is this death which God wishes to deter the people from. Thus, these words prefigure the warning of our Lord spoken in the gospel. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. The prophet then is calling the people to conversion, to change their ways, in order that they might be reconciled to God and live in the truest sense. This is precisely why we are called to admonish one another, to warn one another of any spiritual danger. As St. Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We have already received instructions from Jesus as to how we are to go about this very difficult work, and we are given more in this passage from Ezekiel. In sending the prophet to call the people to conversion, God specifically tells Ezekiel, Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. This is extremely important. When we admonish the sinner, we must always do so based upon Scripture and the tradition which has interpreted it for millennia, not our own opinions. Outside of Scripture and tradition, we simply have no footing and are liable to exchange one shortcoming for another and make both our neighbor's situation as well as our own worse than it had been previously. The book of Job provides us with a good example of those who set out to admonish apart from the word of God. As Job sits in squalor, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to him, we are told, with the intent to console and comfort him. However, as their time together progresses, they each turn and admonish Job, 
telling him that he must have done something wrong to have deserved such punishment. But Job insists he is innocent, and eventually God responds, first clearing Job of any guilt, and then turning to his friends and demanding that they make reparations to Job for having spoken wrongly of both Job and of himself. In addition to demonstrating that our admonishment must always be rooted in Scripture, the negative example of Job's friends also demonstrates that such work must be done patiently and not in a rush to judgment. The virtue of patience is also built into the steps our Lord asks us to take in correcting one another. We are first to address the individual alone, then in a small group, then in a large group, before finally coming to a decision to cut ties, at least temporarily, God willing. Consider the amount of time that would have lapsed from the first attempt at correction to the last. Days, certainly, but more than likely weeks or months. This is a good thing for a couple of reasons. First, by exercising the virtue of patience, we imitate God, who in loving patience has instructed the human family since the time of the fall. The second reason why admonishing the sinner should be a slow and patient process is that it makes time for prayer. Recall that the prophet Ezekiel was to tell the people only what God spoke to him. In addition to taking place through reading the scriptures, God speaks to the conscience in prayer, which requires time and silence. In commenting on Matthew 6 verse 6 and our Lord's instruction that when we pray, we must enter into our chambers, Augustine writes, What are these chambers but the hearts themselves? It is not enough merely to go into the chamber, the door must be closed. We must resist our carnal senses so that prayer of our spirit may be directed to the Father. Making time for a heart-to-heart conversation with God concerning a matter like this achieves a couple of things. First, it gives us time to re-evaluate the situation in the light of Christ, to determine whether we have understood it correctly, and therefore ensure as far as possible that we don't have a plank obstructing our view before we attempt to remove the splinter from our neighbor's eye. We find an excellent exemplar of this in the opening chapter of Matthew's Gospel in the person of St. Joseph. Initially, Joseph had assumed that his betrothed Mary had been unfaithful, as before they came together, she was found to be with child. There is no way Joseph could have known that the child had been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So notice, please, how he responds to the situation. He first considers the matter privately and reflects upon it out of love for Mary, seeking her best interest given the situation. We are told, then, that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. Because Joseph is responding in love to one whom he assumes has grievously offended him at this time, from his perspective, he is truly loving his enemy. Augustine calls the love of one's enemy the perfection of Christian love. This patient act of love is also prayerful. For we are told that Joseph realizes, through the intervention of an angel, that he has judged the situation wrongly. In humble meekness, Joseph is willingly corrected by the word of God and acts accordingly, taking Mary as his wife, becoming the protector of the Savior. In Joseph's reaction to Mary, we also see another effect of spending time in prayer. By spending time in prayer, we begin to see this person as God sees them. 
Yes, we see their shortcomings, but lovingly to the point of identifying with them precisely in their shortcomings. It is this patient love that gives birth to true tolerance, not the vague knockoff that looks the other way as one's brother or sister perishes. For patient love, in imitation of God, desires the freedom of the sinner, not their condemnation. And as St. Augustine teaches in his commentary on the Sermon of the Mount, this cannot be done unless each one regards as his own the weakness of another, putting up with it in all calmness until he whose welfare he has at heart is freed from it. Notice that in these words, Augustine is calling us to imitate Christ, who took on the infirmity of the human family, identifying with us in order that we might be set free from sin. As St. Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Healing must be our primary intention when admonishing one another. Thus the necessity for humility already mentioned. For as members of the body of Christ, we must have the utmost concern for the health of its members, for if one suffers, we all suffer. In other words, the work of admonition must be done with the virtue of solidarity. In this too, the prophet Ezekiel is a prime example. As the people of Judah were taken away into exile in the year 587 BC, he went with them. And it is precisely because he accompanied them that he was in a position to speak the truth to them. We must imitate the example of Jesus and Ezekiel in admonishing the sinner. In correcting another, we must make every effort to identify with them, to see things as far as possible from where they see them. My friends, to be a member of the church, the body of Christ, is to be part of God's instrument of healing in the world. And while at times it is not work that many of us would choose to carry out, the work of healing sometimes includes admonishing one another, calling one another to see the truth precisely so that we may all enjoy life to the full in communion with our God. As we have seen today, as in all things, admonishing the sinner must be done by imitating the love that is our God, made most beautifully and eloquently known in the incarnation of the Son of God. It is Christ who is the exemplar par excellence of admonishing one another in love. And in order to imitate him in this work, we must take care to exercise the virtues of humility, patience, and prayerful discernment to ensure that both our intention and assessment are in alignment with the will of God. By taking the utmost care in such work, we do all we can to whisk others in the direction of the truth, Jesus Christ, in whom alone we find true happiness and peace. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.